From 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll continue our conversation about Milwaukee's Martin Drive neighborhood, one of the most racially diverse in the city. Then we'll look at the fight over the Wisconsin Supreme Court and how it could impact upcoming elections. Republicans realized that this could be the end of their lock-in through gerrymandering in the Assembly and the Senate, and they're trying to think about any route possible in order to prevent that from happening. We'll help you plan a trip to take in the best fall colors in Wisconsin. Cranberries are grown in, in sandy soil. They don't grow in water. And when they're ready to get picked, we flood the cranberries. So that's when you see that iconic red floating cranberry picture. Plus, find out about Barbie's Wisconsin roots with the help of the Wisconsin Historical Society. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to start today with some breaking news. Barbie is from Wisconsin. Barbie is from Willows, Wisconsin, and that was confirmed in a series of books published by Random House starting in 1960, where it was confirmed that Barbie graduated from high school in Willows, Wisconsin. More on Barbie and her Wisconsin roots later in the show. But first, this week on Lake Effect, you've been hearing reporting on Milwaukee's Martin Drive neighborhood. First from residents who live in the neighborhood, and then from Professor Arjit Sen about how Martin Drive came to be one of the most racially diverse neighborhoods here in Milwaukee. On Tuesday, Sen explained some of the factors like affordable housing and access to community resources that help make Martin Drive thrive. Today, WUWM's Mayan Silver continues that conversation and explores how Martin Drive could be a blueprint for other communities in Milwaukee. Would you say that there's any lessons that someone could take away from Martin Drive as it exists today in terms of how to create a more diverse neighborhood in their own community? Yes. Um, uh, very simply, yes. It, it, it is a very clear way of creating public and private spaces which engage with each other. Porches. You know, a street lined with porches and, you know, front yards which are open for people to hang out and talk to each other. That infrastructure is the first thing that you need to have in a good neighborhood. The second infrastructure is having right amount of right kinds of people to have to make sure that it's not people have a choice to come in, to make sure that you're also guarding against gentrification, because that's a very strong possibility in places like Martin Drive. And you know, a bit of it is already happening too, but you know, you have to the people on the ground has to guard against gentrification. They do that through all kinds of ways, through policy as well as through infrastructure as uh, holding on to their houses and making people who are, you know, residents of the neighborhood stay and not go away. And keeping a space diverse is obviously so important for cultural fluency, for respecting and understanding other people, for growing as a community, for engaging with other people that are different than you and learning how they live and living with them and all those things. But are there other factors that are important when it comes to a diverse neighborhood, other things that it contributes to, other reasons that it's good? I mean, I like diversity, and I think diversity is important, but I think what's more important here is choice. You know, because if you think of immigrant neighborhoods, and now this is not an immigrant, I mean, there are Hmong Americans, but they're not necessarily, they're not immigrants there. In an immigrant neighborhood, oftentimes, in the past as well as now, 
it's not that diverse. And that's because of safety. It's a safe zone for people who are marginalized in society that they do want some space where they are safe. So sometimes diversity is not necessarily what people want. They want the choice to live. But, but I think in terms of our contemporary times, diversity does one thing for us. It allows us to move out of our echo chambers and see each other, different from each other, all of us, as humans, as having a family, having real lives, and not as a moniker that we can always say, this guy's that. No, we are actually much more complex. That, for me, is important as having a diverse neighborhood. Uh, and, uh, and that's what Martin Tribe seems to be. And are there any economic benefits in, in the sense of there's so much structural racism in the world, and if there's a diverse neighborhood, it does have a better chance economically and when it comes to crime and poverty and those types of things just because it's battling, you know, there's uphill battles in neighborhoods that are one background. Yeah, um, you know, so there's, you can actually, you cannot do top-down diversity because you can make a di neighborhood diverse in terms of demographic characteristics. But that doesn't mean people talk to each other. Um, there are places where, you know, they're, they're forced um, low-income, high-income together in a place. And, but then you marginalize and stigmatize the low-income people and you don't talk to them. So I feel like diversity is a bottom-up project. You create, you set up the situation, you set up the infrastructure for it. But it's really diverse, really means that people know how to talk across differences, through differences. And that, I don't think it's a natural thing. It doesn't happen just by making a place diverse. Do you think that in Martin Drive, you've seen examples of it being that level of bottom-up diversity? Well, I've worked with people who are the urban guardians, and so I had a very limited view of what, how Martin Drive works. I had the view from the bottom, and from the bottom, it looked really powerful. It looked powerful because of those few people who were bringing people together. And when they brought people together, people generally, human beings who never ever thought were transformative agents became one. And if you see the garden they built and then the water retention shed, all these projects brought people together. And then people who were you know, young and old, they took over. And so that, I've seen that mechanism at work. And when we say bottom, we, what do we mean? Everyday people, people who live in their young adults, uh, youth, people who feel that they're not being heard, especially young people. There are factors out of, out of the control. You've talked about setting up housing as something that communities can create, but assuming that you can't just, you know, flatten the housing that it's in, that's in a neighborhood yeah. and start from scratch and build porches and do those kinds of things. Right. Like, what, what would be your advice about from the wisdom you've gained from Martin Drive and other neighborhoods working there, what would be the wisdom you've gained in terms of who to empower and where resources should go and what, what's needed? Every neighborhood has a history to it. When I say history, I mean actually of architectural history too, that it grew up over time responding to the needs of a certain kind of people. So we have to understand that. Once we understand that, we know the DNA of that neighborhood. Then we have to look for um, residents in the neighborhood who are these, uh, uh, what Patrick Sharkey calls urban guardians. Who are these people who are spending a lot of time 
investing a lot of mental energy trying to get their neighborhoods, neighborhoods together, who are the ones who go around the block talking to you, you know, who are the block leaders. So once you identify those, there has to be a system that empowers them. And when I say empowerment, I actually talk about money, but I also talk about empowerment in other forms. Them being listened to by the police who's actually doing so that they can figure out ways of community policing. You know, so they being getting a forum whenever there is a policy change, come to these leaders and talk to them. Don't always expect them, them to go to City Hall. So identifying those people is another second step. And the third step is to literally find out how the money flows and really rethink ways in which the money flows into the direct hands of these urban guardians and the people they help. Maybe there's another thing, there's a fourth thing which we need to do is to listen to youngsters. They've never been listened to. Um, they've been always talked to, you do this, go to a good school, you're doing this, you should be doing that. There has to be a forum where young people can talk to elders, intergenerational communications. That has really been the success of most neighborhoods till like you know the 1960s and 70s. I think we need to rethink how we can have intergenerational communications in neighborhoods in order for the neighborhoods to thrive. Interesting. You're tuned into Lake Effect. This is WEWM's Mayan Silver speaking with UWM professor Arjit Sen about Martin Drive, one of Milwaukee's most diverse neighborhoods. Do you think there's a place, there are other places in Milwaukee like Martin Drive that you've looked at that are that you, you, you're getting similar evidence from or similar data from? Yeah, that's, you know, it's very hard for me to answer that question because I, my, the work we do is with people on the ground. And then the reason we go to a neighborhood is because there are people on the ground. We don't go to a neighborhood where we do not know any ur urban guardians. So what might turn out to be a space which is not flourishing, we don't even go there because as an outsider, we cannot do anything in a place which doesn't have the infrastructure for things to happen, right? So what I have seen, though, I've worked in Midtown. I've worked in a part of Sherman Park called Centerpiece, which is between Center and Meineke on 38th, 39th, and 40th Street. They named it themselves. Um, I worked in Washington Park, Martin Drive East. Um, and, and I also worked in Thurston Woods and um, Historic Watertown neighborhood before. What I have seen is in each of those neighborhoods, biased as they are because I went to the neighborhoods where there were people, the same um, operation happens. The same equation takes place. People working really hard to make have intergenerational communications, having public space and making things work for their neighborhood. The only difference is some places those people do not have access to money. They do not have access to centralized resources and they do not have a public space to meet. That's the difference. And those are all top-down differences. So I'm right now in Midtown. Incredible neighborhood. I mean, if you if you come to Midtown and see the people who are there, that dedication of making Midtown work, it has got Peak Initiative, it's got Bloom MK, the garden, it's got all kinds of imp incredible institutions. Everything is there. What they now need is that resource, is the funding stream to help them do what they want to do. Same with the Centerpiece neighborhood. Incredible work done by Sherry Fuqua on, 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 on her street, but where's the support? 
And those might be neighborhoods that are not necessarily some of the most diverse neighborhoods in Milwaukee, but neighborhoods that need more resources or have a strong history. But all these neighbor, like you said, all these neighborhoods have similar needs. Mm-hmm. What, whatever a neighborhood it is, it needs the same kind of things to flourish, right? Yeah, but you know, um, the, the, I think diversity index is often also determined by a certain set of um, variables and criteria. Uh, the prob- the the difficulty I have with the thing when we think about diversity is, let's take centerpiece. It's majority African American, but there's tremendous diversity in terms of age, gender, economic, um, uh, you know, knowledge, education, and even perceptions about how you should behave, cultural perceptions. So, I mean. It's hard for me to say that because I often feel that when people measure diversity, they're simply measuring it through racial and phenotypical characteristics. But I think if you think of the diversity of people, I mean, if you look at centerpiece, people from Arkansas, remember, you know, people from uh, Tennessee, people from New York, like all these histories that are together, they happen to be all African-American, but they're so different from each other. And I think that is diversity, too. Right. Totally. I totally agree with you. It's just that in Milwaukee, it's known as a city with extreme segregation when it comes to especially black and white Milwaukeeans. Yes. And so we're kind of looking at these neighborhoods where racially that's not the case. You know, I guess we'll close out with like, is there like a fun memory or interaction you have mm-hmm. from being in Martin Drive? Yeah, Hmong American Friendship Association was a great place for my students because the grandmothers make soup every afternoon at 12 o'clock, and all my students would disappear. They're gone field working, and I'm like, what, what, what's going on? And then I realized they get fed by the grandmas. So we decided we we're going to have a art project in, when they have all the kids come in and meet. So we did this um, um, art project where we took we b- took balloons and. Uh, you know, a frame, and they wrote their dream, their bucket list dream of for the world, held a balloon and took a picture. And then we did an, uh, and it was incredible, the kids and the kind of dreams that they have for the, our world. From the most troubling one where, please, less guns, to I want a greener um, world. It was incredible what kids could just dream of. Nice. That sounds amazing. That sounds amazing. Well, Arijit Sen of UWM, thank you so much for speaking with us about Martin Drive, about diversity, about how to make areas more diverse, how to empower people. Thank you. Thank you. Arjeet Sen is a history professor in the Urban Studies Department at UW-Milwaukee. He spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver. This reporting is a part of a WUWM engagement project where reporters spent time in the Martin Drive neighborhood building relationships, gaining insight, and centering community voices in our reporting. You can learn more about that, hear from Martin Drive residents, and find Mayan's full conversation with Professor Sen, all at WUWM.com. Although she hasn't yet heard a case, Republicans in the legislature have been threatening to impeach Justice Janet Protasiewicz. GOP leadership is pressuring the justice to recuse herself from a redistricting case 
that could decide the fate of Republican dominance in the Wisconsin legislature. To learn more about this situation, Lake Effect's Joy Powers is joined by Paul Nolette, director of Marquette's Les Aspen Center for Government. What's been going on with the Wisconsin Supreme Court and the legislature? Just a kind of quick overview for people who may not have been paying attention. Yes. So um, earlier this year, uh, liberals finally won a majority on the state Supreme Court when now Justice Protasiewicz won in a surprisingly large victory in her Supreme Court race. Liberals now have a four to three advantage on the Supreme Court, first time in well over a decade. Ever since that victory and and since Protasiewicz took office this summer, Republicans in the state assembly have been talking about already about impeaching Justice Protasiewicz. That discussion has come amidst some concern on the parts of Republicans that the Supreme Court at the state level will strike down the redistricting maps that Republicans had put together for the next 10 years until the next census. And those redistricting maps are heavily tilted towards Republicans. So even though it's a essentially a 50-50 state, Republicans have really locked in a strong majority in both the state assembly and the state senate. So because largely because of that case, but also because of other issues, Republicans are talking about impeaching Protasiewicz even before she's ruled on any case. This appears to be just naked partisanship. It it doesn't seem to be there's any real benefit to voters who obviously voted in Protasiewicz with a uh, surprising majority of the votes. What What is the rationale for even investigating, impeaching a person who hasn't made a single ruling yet? Yes. And so the idea here or the criticism coming from Republicans of Protasiewicz is that she has essentially prejudged the redistricting case. So during the campaign, when she was running for Supreme Court, she made a number of comments on issues like abortion, but also the gerrymandered maps here in Wisconsin, saying a number of things about them, about how this rigs the elections in favor of the Republicans. And those words that Protasiewicz had on the campaign trail, Republicans are saying, well, this shows that she can't be a neutral judge in this case. And That's why they're arguing that even before she hears any case, if she doesn't recuse herself from that case, which she has no intention to do, then she has to be impeached. Democrats, of course, on the other hand, are saying what this is doing is essentially just reversing the will of the voters who, after all, voted Protasiewicz in by a surprisingly large margin. Kind of to the point that Republicans are trying to make here, the Supreme Court has actually ruled that justices on state Supreme Courts are allowed to campaign on issues that they'll then decide on. Have Republicans explained why this would be substantially different? To me, this sounds I- exactly the same. Yeah, there there is a case, uh, Republican Party of Minnesota versus White, which was back in 2002, in which the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that candidates for state judiciaries, like the state Supreme Court, have freedom of speech. They have First Amendment rights to discuss and express their opinions on even controversial issues. And so Protasiewicz and Protasiewicz's defenders are saying, well, that case is clearly applicable here. She was expressing her First Amendment right to give her opinion on an issue. 
one of the issues with that, I suppose, uh, even though that does seem very applicable to this case, is that, you know, there's not a whole lot of guide rails when it comes to impeachments. Impeachments can be political and they can be politicized. And in fact, they often are. And even if Protosavitz has a First Amendment right, Republicans are saying, well, that doesn't insulate her from impeachment inquiry and potentially impeachment and removal from the bench. It sounds to me like they're saying, well, we don't like the outcome of the election. We don't think she should be able to do this, even though legally she is able to do this. Uh, Republicans actually changed ethics rules in the state saying justices aren't required to recuse themselves from cases involving campaign donors. So that's not even applicable here. They're saying, well, we don't like the results of the election, so we're going to use taxpayer money to remove an official that taxpayers voted in. Does that seem fair? Yeah, and and I mean, Democrats are pointing this out, as you mentioned, because another argument that Republicans are making is that not only did Protosavitz make a number of comments about redistricting on the campaign trail, but she also received, you know, an unprecedented amount of money from the state Democratic Party, from liberal groups, um, both in Wisconsin and across the country. And they're arguing that this is another example of her bias, but Certainly, Republican candidates for the state Supreme Court have raked in lots of money over the years as well, including in this past election. And and as you mentioned, had changed ethics rules to not require justices to recuse themselves in cases that that come up. And so it seems like there's quite a bit of inconsistency here. Democrats certainly would call it hypocrisy. And it does look like with this impeachment inquiry that Republicans realize that this could be the end of their lock-in through gerrymandering in the Assembly and the Senate, and they're trying to think about any route possible in order to prevent that from happening. Hypocrisy seems like a, a kind word in this case. To me, it sounds like they're trying to weaken our democracy. Yeah, and I mean, Protosavitz won by, I believe it was over 10 points in a 50-50 state. Um, it was a very powerful victory. Um, And the voters were very clear about their preferences here. And because of the way that impeachments work in Wisconsin, you know, even the impeachment itself, which would just take the assembly, even if she's not convicted on uh, whatever charges are brought, she wouldn't be able to rule on any cases. And that would, again, bring the Supreme Court to a 3-3 tie. But that directly goes against what voters voted for just a few months ago. As this has gone on, the legislature has also attempted to hastily pass a bill that would create an independent commission that would create maps. Now, this is something that Democrats have been pushing for in the state of Wisconsin for a while. Uh, Republicans are calling this the Iowa model, but there are substantial differences between what Wisconsin legislators have put forward and the model that they uh, have in Iowa. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah. So the proposal that Republicans put forward would still very much involve the legislature. So both Republicans and Democrats would have an opportunity to pick members of this new redistricting model. So it wouldn't be directly the legislatures, but a a lot of Democrats, including Governor Evers, are saying this is really just a screen, essentially. It really allows the legislature to control the process uh, still. So 
it may have some similarities to Iowa's redistricting process, but it is still potentially a partisan and legislator-driven process in this case. And I think part of the, the issue is not just with the model itself of the legislature's proposed redistricting plan, but this is, of course, in the context of them using their leverage to impeach Protosewitz even before she's ruled on a case to try to force this new model in place. And so for a lot of Democrats, this is kind of like, you know, the offer you can't refuse type of thing, where this is not a compromise that is put together by both parties, but rather something that's foisted upon the voters of Wisconsin who, who voted in Protosewitz by overwhelming margins. And so the, the criticism of this is twofold. One, that the process still is very legislator driven. This is essentially a way for Republicans to maintain their control over the process. And two, the bigger context here being that Republicans are using unprecedented threats against the Supreme Court in order to, to get what they want. You know, in some ways, this is unprecedented. I, I, I don't think that there's a similar example of them trying to impeach a Supreme Court justice before they've even heard a case. But there is some precedent for Republicans having this kind of backlash in the state of Wisconsin to an election they didn't like. I think the obvious example being that when Governor Evers was elected, they sought to and did strip a lot of power from his position, despite the fact, of course, voters had just said that they wanted this man to have the position. They substantially changed what that position was. When it comes to this redistricting fight, which is ultimately what this is, it feels like Republicans are throwing kind of everything at the wall, trying to see what sticks. What's the end goal here? Because I've heard that in some ways the end goal is is really just to slow down this process. And that may be. I mean, that may certainly be one uh, of the outcomes here, because let's say that this ends up going even into federal court. If Democrats challenge what Republicans are doing with the impeachment and end up bringing up that case, Republican Party of Minnesota versus white and have this whole First Amendment fight. I mean, that's going to take months. And by the time that that's resolved, you're already past the 2024 elections. You know, you're getting into 2026, the midterm elections. So delay really benefits Republicans here as well. So even if the ultimate outcome is not removal of Protosewitz from the bench, but just delaying any action on redistricting and other issues, then that's a win for Republicans. So that could be the outcome here. But I also think, yeah, I mean, it's a really kind of a last ditch effort to save what are largely considered some of, if not the most gerrymandered state legislative maps in the country. It's a bizarre conversation we're having because ultimately what they're talking about in trying to control the legislature, trying to ensure that they have control over their legislature, is making sure that the average Wisconsinite is not able to have their voices heard at the ballot box, is making sure that the will of all Wisconsinites is not played out in our legislature. Yeah, and, and that happens in, in a, a pair of different ways. One, essentially overturning or potentially overturning a statewide Supreme Court race, but then the bigger picture being you know, Democrats may consistently get a majority of the state assembly and state Senate votes, but have virtually no chance, not only of not getting a majority, but of preventing Republicans from getting a supermajority. So in other words, Republicans can gain a supermajority or close to it with a minority of votes across the state. 
uh, which is a, a severe test of uh, democracy and voter rights here in Wisconsin. And so I think those issues, those fundamental issues about representation and democracy are very much at play here. We'll see what the future holds. Uh, Paul Nolette, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thanks for having me. Paul Nolette is the director of Marquette's Les Aspen Center for Government and an associate professor of political science. He spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. Later in the show, we'll learn about a Barbie doll from a collection in the Wisconsin Historical Society. Turns out she has a Midwest origin story. But first, we'll help you plan a trip to take in all that fall in Wisconsin has to offer. In the fall, it's really the best time to take that drive. The area is just washed and red as ripe cranberries are floating to the top of these flooded marshes. And then the trees provide all the bursts of crimson and orange and gold. And you're just kind of like driving through this painter's palette of rich colors. That's coming up on Lake Effect here on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Wisconsin is the largest grower of cranberries in the world, and it's harvest season. Right now, about 270 cranberry farms in Wisconsin are flooding their fields to harvest our state fruit. It's a beautiful sight to see, so this is the perfect time to plan a visit to see one of Wisconsin's cranberry farms, and a great opportunity to check out all of the fall colors our state has to offer. To help you plan a fall getaway, Lake Effect's Becky Mortensen speaks with Ann Sayers of Travel Wisconsin and one of Wisconsin's cranberry farm operators, Rochelle Hoffman, for this month's Wandering Wisconsin. Fall is here and there are tons of activities to do around the state this time of year, but today we're going to focus on the upcoming cranberry harvest. To start, Ann, can you talk about the cranberry industry in Wisconsin and why this is such a big part of the state's agro-tourism? I would love to. I just love cranberries and talking about them because when it comes to this little fruit, Wisconsin wears the crown. We are actually the largest grower of cranberries in the world. Wisconsin grows nearly 60% of the country's cranberry supply. And so while they're really big business for the agricultural economy, they're also big fun for travelers. And I'm really excited that people get to learn about that today. You know, cranberry farmers, they love to educate the public on the importance of the product and the industry. But many farmers also invite folks to experience the harvest season for themselves. So communities like Warren's or um, Stone Lake, Eagle River, they throw fantastic festivals centered on the fruit. And you're going to find opportunities throughout central and northern Wisconsin to tour the marshes during the harvest. Um, and that also includes farms like our guest today, Rochelle, rooted in red at the Dempsey Cranberry Farm, as well as tour opportunities at places like Lake Nokomis Cranberries that's outside of Eagle River. Um, and the Splash of Red Cranberry Tours, that's in Pittsville, which is managed by the country's only high school cranberry science class. Rochelle, you work at one of the many cranberry farms we have here in Wisconsin. Tell me about Rooted in Red at Dempsey Cranberry Farm and what you do there. 
Yeah, so we are really lucky to uh, be able to have folks come to our multi-generation uh, cranberry farm. I'm a fifth generation cranberry farmer. Our, our family has been growing cranberries in central Wisconsin for over 120 years. So it is something I really bleed red. It is something that has um, I've been able to grow up doing. And so when we have folks come visit the cranberry farm, it is a really special time. Like Anne said, it is our state fruit. It is an over a billion dollar industry in the state of Wisconsin. And so um, being able to to experience that beautiful red floating cranberries at harvest time is a really really special experience for folks um, who who want to you know experience Wisconsin's fruit. Yeah so explain the cranberry harvest process and how can people check it out and participate? Yeah, so the cranberry harvest process has has drastically, you know, changed within the last hundred years. When my great grandfather was first harvesting cranberries by hand, right? We now have um, a lot of developed technology and innovation. We have different um, harrows. So cranberries are grown in in sandy soil. They don't grow in water, which is a, a large misconception. Um, so they grow all summer in size. Go from a green little berry to a red cranberry. And when they're ready to get picked, we flood the cranberries with water. We run a tractor through them and it gently knocks the cranberries off. Cranberries have four air pocket chambers, which make them buoyant and they float. So that's when you see that iconic red floating cranberry picture um, is during that harvest time. We take a, a big yellow boom and we corral those cranberries together and we pump them up into a, a berry cleaner where we get them cleaned. And then they get either shipped, get stored, uh, that made into juice or to craisins, or they get processed to fresh fruit. And that's what you see in your grocery stores. So the process of cranberry harvesting has changed throughout the decades but the fruit itself has just kind of stayed the same. And we're, we're so lucky for to have a lot of innovation that has kind of changed throughout the years, um, but still get to keep that awesome cranberry fruit. So if someone came to Rooted in Red this time of year, what would they see? What would that experience be like? Yeah, so at Rooted in Red, we host a variety of different activities. In the summertime, we have everything from um, music and local food truck nights to um, we do farm dinners where we have a big long table and we have, um, you know, community meals together. Um, during the harvest time, it's really special. We do harvest tours on our wagon. We also let people put on waders and get into the cranberry beds a couple days out of the year. August or October 14th and 15th this year, we're going to be having our immersion experiences where folks can come to Rooted in Red in Wisconsin Rapids and put on those cranberry waders and walk into those floating cranberries and have their own harvest experience. Um, later in the year, we're going to be doing a cranberry market, which is um, different vendors that our craftspeople are going to be putting uh, bringing some of their goods together. And around Christmas time, we do a Santa experience for kids and families. So we have a variety of activities that are community-based and um, also focusing on the cranberry as well. There are over 250 cranberry farms in the state of Wisconsin, many of them in central Wisconsin. And if you want to see them and maybe take in some of the fall colors, you can do that on the Cranberry Highway. And what can you tell me about that? Yes, the Cranberry Highway. So this is a self-guided route. It's mostly in the Wisconsin Rapids area, and it winds through the heart of Cranberry Country. It's concentrated on Highway 54 and the communities nearby the highway, like Nakusa, Cranmore, and Pittsville. And Cranberry Marshes line the edge of the whole route. And in the fall, that's really the best time to take that drive. The area is just 
washed and red as ripe cranberries are floating to the top of these flooded marshes, as Rochelle explained. And then the trees provide all the bursts of crimson and orange and gold. And you're just kind of like driving through this painter's palette of rich colors along the cranberry highway. I mean, where else can you do that? And what other fall activities could people do in the Wisconsin Rapids area? Yeah, well, you know, so the sandy soil that makes the Wisconsin Rapids such a good area for growing cranberries is also what makes it so phenomenal for golfing, which, you know, that's a great thing to do on a crisp fall day. And the courses up there have large, natural, um, sandy obstacles that create a really fun challenge for the golfers. Some courses that visitors should check out is definitely Sand Valley Golf Resort, which Golf Digest includes among its list of the top 100 publicly playable golf courses in the entire country. There's also the Lake Arrowhead Golf Course. It's another elite course in the area that takes advantage of that sandy soil in its design. And, you know, if you're visiting up there, Ruby Reds um, in Wisconsin Rabbits is a specialty food market that sells a ton of cranberry-flavored products like mustard and honey and syrup. They also have a bunch of other Wisconsin-made specialty food products and gifts. So whether you're on the highway or taking in a day of golf, it's a place to stop by. If people are planning a fall getaway in the area, maybe they just want to go around and see some of the fall colors. Where are some places you'd recommend they stay in the area? Mm -hmm. Well, if you're in a larger travel party, maybe check out Lodges of the Lakes. That's in Nakusa. There are um, two, three, and four-bedroom condominiums for rent. They're fully furnished lodges. They have a real like luxury feel to them. And you'll love how the vaulted ceilings and the large windows draw in a lot of natural light. A great option for couples is to consider Le Chateau, the manor bed and breakfast in Wisconsin Rapids. This is a wonderfully preserved Queen Anne style house has more than 130 years old. So when you arrive, you'll be greeted by the owners and invited to enjoy a pre-made treat in the butler's pantry. And Le Chateau has five grand guest rooms and common areas like the library and parlor that are perfect for guests to relax. What about some restaurants in the area you would recommend people check out? Okay, so for Riverside Dining, take in the Anchor Bay Bar and Grill that's in Wisconsin Rapids. They have beautiful views of the Wisconsin River, and you're going to find seafood dishes, a ton of burger choices, pizzas, and more. And maybe go with one of Anchor Bay's from scratch soups to warm up on a chilly fall day. Um, another option in Wisconsin Rapids is the Branding Iron Supper Club. Locals and tourists have been enjoying that spot for like 50 years. The Supper Club features many steakhouse and seafood favorites. And one of their specialties at the Branding Iron is the prime rib, which you can order not just on Saturdays, but every single night that they're open. So Rochelle and Anne, for both of you, if someone in Wisconsin has never taken part in a cranberry harvest, maybe never seen one, why would you recommend they give it a try this fall? So it is a, a great opportunity to not only experience um, the beautiful colors and um, different tourism opportunities in Wisconsin, but it's really a great opportunity to, to take in one of U.S.'s only native fruits, and it is Wisconsin State Fruit. It is an opportunity to gather with your family to experience kind of one of those bucket list items that most people say. We have thousands of people that come out during cranberry harvest, and our goal uh, every single time is that they leave with a full belly and an edified soul is kind of what we say, and we want them to have had a really wonderful experience on the cranberry farm, um, and we go out of our way to make sure that everyone has a really great experience on that cranberry farm. 
Oh, I couldn't agree more with everything Rochelle just said. It's just, it's like this uniquely Wisconsin experience. We grow the most cranberries in the world. We celebrate this fruit like nobody else does. And, you know, it's one thing you see, you see the cranberry marshes on a TV commercial, but it's a totally different thing to actually immerse yourself. They put on the waders and get in there and do it. Um, and it's going to leave you with a deeper appreciation of where our food comes from and the folks who are part of growing it. And I, I think it's a really special part of our state. And I'm so excited that folks are doing so much to make sure others get to experience it. And we know our travelers just love it. It's, it makes for a perfect Instagram photo. Rochelle, as a fifth generation cranberry farmer, what's special about this time of year for you? Oh, I think that it is such a magical time of year. It's crazy hectic, if I'm going to be real honest, but it's the time of year when you're able to sit back and really, really experience the literal fruits of your labor, right? We work year round from the winter time to the springtime to the summertime, whether we are doing ice protection in the winter, whether we're, we're getting pollinators there in the springtime to pollinate our, our cranberry blossoms, whether we're tending to it in the summertime, we put so much love and energy into our cranberries. So when we get to harvest, we're able to kind of experience and see that beautiful harvest and really, really appreciate the fruits of our labor. Anne and Rochelle, thank you both for joining me for Wandering Wisconsin. You are thank so you. Thank you. Becky. This was so fun. It was great chatting. Rochelle Hoffman is a cranberry grower and owner of Rooted in Red at Dempsey Cranberry Farm. Ann Sayers is the secretary of the Wisconsin Department of Tourism. They spoke with Lake Effects' Becky Mortensen for our series, Wandering Wisconsin, where we help you plan a trip in our home state. You can find past segments or download Wandering Wisconsin as a podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Did you know that Barbie is from Wisconsin? Keep listening to Lake Effect to find out more on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. The Barbie movie, directed by Greta Gerwig, has become the highest grossing domestic film of 2023. Pretty much every week since its opening, it's broken some kind of record. And today is Warner Brothers' best domestic release in its history. With renewed attention on Barbie, we thought we'd learn more about her and the doll's Wisconsin roots. So if you haven't seen the Barbie movie yet, there's some very mild spoilers I'm about to share with you. But don't worry, it's just for the opening scene. Since the beginning of time, since the first little girl ever existed, there have been dolls. But the dolls were always and forever baby dolls. Until... Enter Barbie. Towering over a group of little girls playing with baby dolls, introducing them to the possibilities of play. Dressed in an iconic black and white striped bathing suit, her blonde hair pulled back in a ponytail, with gold hoop earrings and a pair of white sunglasses. This was the first Barbie doll that was introduced at the International Toy Fair in 1959. If you want to see a similar Barbie doll model, you don't have to go far. The Wisconsin Historical Society has one in their collection. 
To share more about the doll and where it came from, I'm joined by Abby Norderhow, Director of Acquisitions and State Archivist for the Wisconsin Historical Society. Abby, welcome to Lake Effect. Thanks for speaking with me. Yeah, thank you so much. So you actually have one of these original models in your collection. Where did this Barbie come from? So the Barbie doll that the Wisconsin Historical Society has in their collection is from 1961. So it's a little bit different than that original. Um, The primary difference being that our Barbie has pearl earrings and the original has the hoop earrings. Um, So the Barbie that we have was purchased by Orville and Francine Fox, who lived in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And they actually purchased that Barbie specifically for their granddaughter, Beth Fox, so that when she came to visit them from Madison, she would have something to play with. And Barbie apparently has some Wisconsin roots. She's supposedly from the fictional town of Willows, Wisconsin. Do we know any more about this and her Midwest origin story? Barbie is from Willows, Wisconsin, and that was confirmed in a series of books published by Random House starting in 1960, where it was confirmed that Barbie graduated from high school in Willows, Wisconsin. However, the story has changed a little bit over the years in Barbie Dreamhouse Adventures, which was a television program. Um, the story was changed so that Barbie moved from Willows, Wisconsin when she was eight years old to settle in Malibu. We don't know where Willows is in Wisconsin, um, but it's sort of the idea that Ruth Handler had when she created the Barbie doll was that every girl should be able to see herself in Barbie. So centering Barbie in the Midwest and in a small town makes her very accessible. And when Barbie debuted, it was two mixed reviews, honestly. So what were some sort of the concerns that, you know, everyone from doll buyers to even the heads of Mattel had? Barbie was a really unique product when she was introduced. At that time, most dolls aimed at little girls were baby dolls, sort of with the idea that it would let them envision themselves as mothers and let them play in kind of a caretaking role. And the idea of Barbie that Ruth had was that Barbie should be what any little girl could envision her future to be. So having Barbie as an adult rather than a child made little girls think about their future and think about what they could be when they grew up. I think it's notable because Ruth herself was a female executive at a time when female executives were fairly uncommon. And so she was giving girls an avenue to see themselves maybe in a business role or in in one of the many other careers that Barbie has had over the years. One of the main hurdles of the design of Barbie was the fact that she was mature, that she had breasts, that she had long legs and, you know, was something that made obviously all the male executives uncomfortable. And Ruth was trying to explain the concept and she came across uh, something called the Lily doll in, on a trip to Switzerland in the summer of 1956 that kind of modeled what she was trying to conceptualize. Can you explain a bit more about the Lily doll and why it's significant in Barbie's origin? Sure. So, um, Ruth Handler had noticed that her daughter preferred to play with adult women paper dolls rather than baby dolls. And then she was on a trip in Switzerland and came across this Lily doll, which was um, an adult, an adult female doll. And she had her daughter with her at the time. And both she and her daughter were sort of captivated by this doll and the possibilities that there were there. Um, So she bought one of those dolls and brought it back with her and used it as a model to make to make the modern Barbie doll. And that that idea of an adult female doll with an adult female body was was new at the time and I think was probably hard for people to accept and to um, envision such a change in what kids were playing with. And while Barbie has had several different careers in her lifetime as a toy, this first Barbie doll was primarily for the fashion accessories, right? Absolutely. So the Barbie's first career was as a teenage fashion model. And one of the things that's really interesting about Barbie and that Lily doll that it was based on is that Barbie, you could purchase individual outfits for her um, and really expand your collection that way. Whereas the Lily doll, 
you had to purchase a new doll to get different outfits for that doll. Um, Ruth talked about seeing a Lily doll in a beautiful ski sweater and realizing that in order to get that ski sweater, you had to have a whole other doll. So her idea was that making the clothing interchangeable and selling it separately would really allow for more avenues of play. And talking about those other clothing accessories, what other clothing items are with this Barbie in your collection here that you have? This Barbie has a couple other outfits, mainly party dress style outfits. Um, so a couple different pink longer dresses, a skirt. Um, one thing that's really interesting about the Barbie we have in our collection and Barbies in general is the homemade clothing. Um, it used to be so much more common for people to sew their own clothing rather than get it off the rack at a store. And we see that in our collection as well. So we have some commercially made Barbie clothes as well as Barbie clothes that people sewed for their, their dolls to kind of customize their looks. So along with Barbie's popularity as this doll made its footing in the toy world and in popular culture, there was and still is some criticisms of this iconic doll. So what are some of the main negative perceptions that Barbie has? Obviously, one of the main criticisms of Barbie is her body shape. It's not a realistic woman's body shape. And there's been thoughts over the years that that might contribute to um, to girls and women feeling badly about their own bodies. Um, she's also often blonde and the first Barbie was white. It wasn't until um, the 1960s that there was an African-American Barbie doll. So she doesn't necessarily represent all people in that way. Um, there's also been some criticism that the initial African-American Barbie was still the same um, body and face mold as Barbie, just a different color. Um, and so although Barbie strove to be more equal early on, it wasn't um, it wasn't with a different model that might um, more reflect what different folks look like. And the Barbie design has changed over the years as well, uh, while trying to remain somewhat recognizable to this original doll that we're talking about today. But one thing that Barbie has maintained over the years is her independence. And, and what are some of the other positives that are associated with Barbie? Sure. Well, Barbie, Barbie and Ken have never married. So Barbie has remained an independent woman um, since 1959 when she was introduced. Um, I think some other positives of Barbie are that imagination. Barbie has had so many different careers that different girls and children can envision themselves having. Um, she's also been an avenue for imagination and exploratory play. So really letting people open up their imaginations and think big about their future. Obviously, the Barbie movie by Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie has added to this conversation about this toy and what it represents. So for you personally, how do you see Barbie and how do you appreciate this artifact from the Wisconsin Historical Society? I had Barbies growing up, so I've always had a soft spot for Barbie. Um, one thing that I think is really interesting about the Barbie in our collection is the way it, it tells the story of childhood from 1961, and it connects so concretely with childhood today. Um, it shows how Beth Fox was playing with her doll. If you look at the Barbie, we have her hairs in a French braid. She's had her clothing changed. So you can see that this Barbie was used and played with. And it really shows how, how Beth interacted with her and how she enjoyed that doll. And I think when you look at Barbies today, you still see that, that kids are using them to play and tell stories with. Um, Kate McKinnon's character of Weird Barbie is a great example of that, where um, you know the the weird Barbie has been drawn on and clearly used and loved by a child. And you can see that in the Barbie that we have in our collection. Abby Norderhaugh is the Director of Acquisitions and State Archivist for the Wisconsin Historical Society. 
And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, and Excret Nunez join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Lena Tran, Mayan Silver, and Eddie Morales from the WUWM news team this week. Jason Reeve is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. A recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling removed federal protections for a majority of the country's wetlands. We'll explore what that means for Wisconsin's wetlands on Monday here on Lake Effect. Plus, we'll learn about the discoveries made by largely overlooked women that laid the foundation of understanding space today. Thanks so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.